Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, welcome to Crimeland. My name's Jeannie J and I have a quick favour to ask, well, two really. Firstly, if you could download this episode of Crimeland, I would be eternally grateful as this is what counts towards charts. And also, if you have enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate you to take the time to rate or review us on iTunes. A quick disclaimer as well that absolutely no offence is meant to any of the people discussed in this episode. This week, I am talking to... Hey, hi, it's me, Tara Flynn. Yay! About <laughs> hi, the Julie. death of Sophie Tuscan to Plantine. Tara, thank you so much for coming on. You're the best. Thank you. Ah, uh, no, no. Listen, I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, I'm obviously that that yay was not not meant to be followed by a description of a heinous crime committed I in know, the county. It's, from. it's a tricky but, balance because I am advertising this as a true crime comedy podcast, which in itself, I'm not sure is a genre. So, you know, I take yeah. the responsibility there, Tara. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It's like this is definitely not funny, but uh, yet these things have happened and we, we we do talk about them. We are all backing up all the true crime on Netflix right now. And oh uh, like... I think I've watched it all. I think I've actually completed Netflix. Like my homepage is just empty because they're like, you watched it all. Yeah, I don't get I don't get notifications from them anymore about what's new on there. I just get, hey, <laughs> what, what do you what do you think we I should do? Get, I get that you want to rewatch. That's when you know you have a problem. I hear you. But listen, we're all in the same boat. We are all in the same Netflixy boat. Um, yeah, true crime. It's a weird one, isn't it? Why are we so fascinated? I think sometimes when things are a bit strange, we go towards, well, we really explore our fears. Like the way kids with fairy tales, they want really macabre stuff. And that is actually such a good analogy. Very, I wonder. very true. Yes. Because I was just discussing fairy tales with Fred yesterday and I was talking about how, you know, they they are always quite sinister fairy tales. And I think, would I be wrong, but I think originally were fairy tales kind of invented as a way to discourage kids from going into the woods. Things like that, but also and on a deep, yeah. But there was deep, always that macabre kind of element to them. Yeah, and on a deeper level, apparently they were more about letting kids explore in a safe place. So your parents would tell you the story, or you would read it in your home. Oh, but you could explore really dark things from a safe environment. So you're you're not in the woods, but you're going, what if my parents were gone and I was in the woods with my brother and I found a house. 
<laughs> what would I do? I mean, I You'd grew up in the countryside. Eat it, Tara. Come on, that's well, what we know. I grew up do. in the countryside, and I had several escape plans. I had, you know, would I would I be able to get to the the shed quick enough to get my bike out? Um, would I be able to cycle through the dark night into Kinsale? Because oh, uh, we were four miles from Kinsale. What if my my parents were were held up, or would I stow away in the boot? I I went through all this, but I think I think what fa- kids have vivid imaginations, and we all do. I think I think we need to explore dark things, and I think that's where the true crime fascination comes from. Absolutely, I think, it's the I same think spot in the brain. I think that's so interesting about the fairy tales and like kind of exploring these dark themes in a safe space. Now, this one, I'm sure you're very au fait, Tara, with it because like you're a West Cork girl. But just so I'm probably going to be boring you with a lot of detail that you no, already no, no. knew here. But it's just kind of, a, 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 I suppose, an overview and a recap for the listener who might not be au fait with the whole story. And first, a quick disclaimer before you do that recap. So basically, um, I am from Kinsale in County Cork, which a lot of West Cork people go, to, that's not West Cork. And uh, <laughs> they'd be right. It is kind of the gateway to West Cork. But because most of my work is from the sheep's head. We are from the sheep's head oh, and, wow. and deep, much, much deeper into West Cork. My mum is from Durris. Um, so it, all down from around that area. So I, I, I have a West Cork heritage. I am from Kinsale, which is the gateway to. It's the gateway to West Cork. Kinsale so we still did have a lot beautiful of though, as well, isn't it? It's great. And I'm dying to see it again when lockdown is over. Oh, so sorry to interrupt. It'll happen. It'll happen. The disclaimer for the, the West Cork truists. So there you go. Wonderful. Mwah. Thank you so much, Tara. OK, so <laughs> Sophie Toscantiplanti was a French TV producer who was tragically beaten to death outside her holiday home in Tourmore School, County Cork, on the night of the 23rd of December 1996. She was the wife of film producer Daniel Toscantiplanti and very well known in France, but enjoyed the anonymity that West Cork brought her. She was a regular visitor to school, a stunningly beautiful West Cork uh, village with a significant seasonal trade and a major blow-in contingent. So people from all quarters of the globe have relocated to school and Sophie simply adored it. A beautiful independent divorcee, her death attracted huge interest at the time, not least, of course, because divorce had only just been introduced in Ireland the year before. And thus, her divorcee status was very much an unfortunate focal point at the time amidst what was still a very kind of misogynistic media culture. That aside, the brutal murder of a mother at Christmas stunned both the local community and the local authorities. So it really was just... I would say probably the crime that really shook the country in the 90s. It was huge. It was absolutely huge. I was already living in Dublin, but I was about to uh, get the train down to Cork for Christmas because it was Christmas. Yeah. And it was like. And how did you hear about it? Would it have been the radio? Yeah, it was on the radio. It was in the newspapers. It was it was literally everywhere. And it was all people could talk about um, because it was so brutal. And part of it was that it was because, of course, there have been murders in, in every county in the land before. And I remember even growing up, there'd be there'd be murders. There would be. And I'm not saying they were they were all the time or anything like it, but. People are violent by times and very often within families. That was the difference here. Yes. The yes, mystery yes, surrounding right. it. To this yes. day, there no one has been charged. And but 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 the, the murders in previous occasion on previous occasions would have been it would have been a family feud or it would have been what they call domestic violence. Um it would have been someone known to the person who was killed. Very um, true. So very, they would have been like explicable, but there was this like as you say, this was just a complete mystery. Yeah, a complete mystery. And the, everyone's worst nightmare, again tapping into that primeval thing of what if you're just just in your own house, the place where you're supposed yes, to be safe. Yes, and yes. someone comes in and destroys that. And it's it's quite rare. And again, even from all the, the stupid true crime we're all watching, but it is quite rare for opportunistic murders to happen. That's why serial killers and all that are so fascinating to people because it's rare. Usually it is a horrible, someone who's already had a tendency towards violence who loses it with someone that they know um, and it's been building or it's been coming or and it is very rare and for the, an opportunity. Yeah, and the victim is in some kind of rela- and relationship with the person. Yeah, yeah that's very yeah. true. Journalist Ian Bailey has been arrested twice in relation to the murder but maintains his innocence. And the reason I thought 
um, that this will be a good one because it, there's something in terms of it being, there's kind of a recent development as well to this. Uh, so say last year on the 31st of May 2019, he was convicted of murder in absentia by the Cork, now I'm going to say this wrong, I don't know if you speak French, Dar, Cour de Cis de Paris and sentenced to 25 years in prison. So France is hoping to secure an extradition from Ireland on the basis of this sentence. So there's kind of been a bit of a recent development there as well. So in terms yeah. of the case, oh, the dogs, I love the dogs. Yeah, sorry, there's my dog now. Um, uh, that's Jack, sorry about that. <laughs> We're all know, locked into one apartment, on. so there'll be the odd bark. Yeah, I, I mean, I had heard about- well. I love it. Ah, uh, he is. Sure, listen, we're all, we're all in-, in an arc now at this stage. Uh, he, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a strange one, isn't it? And uh, of course, Ian Bailey's name has to come up. And it's, it's like any, uh, it's, let's say it was a fictional drama. The, the focus is always on the suspects. The focus Absolutely. is always on yeah. who's going to be the bad guy. And then, then we tend to talk less about the person who has been yeah. harmed. And I think, and actually, it's certainly, and especially, you know, with the advent of like recent podcasts and all the rest, like, you know, probably you would say that, that like, unfortunately, the story of the victim seems to kind of I think it's it's almost slightly forgotten in like this yeah. kind of narrative because the central I suppose the central suspect is in and of himself like a very fascinating character and he tends yeah. to draw a lot of attention and it does really overshadow the actual crime itself. That's the thing. And so in many, many ways, we'll simply never know. I mean, I'm sure you've listened to the incredible West Cork podcast. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, which, fantastic. Yeah, it's so good and so well made. The only thing was it did get my cork back up when they, they they played a bit of footage of some locals and they said, now we, we must we must tell you, it is quite difficult to understand. And I was like, get get my oh, yes. pike oh, up to the really patch. really annoyed I'll... me. Because <laughs> no, I find it's... that we were we were just talking about watching True Crime on Netflix. Do you find out that sometimes those subtitle people and I'm like, no, no, no. Like there, there's no need to suddenly subtitle this person. Yeah, this person is, uh, you know, you maybe you don't understand, but you need to broaden your listening. OK, broaden yes, they're from a listening. different socioeconomic background. <laughs> we get it. But like you don't like it's the same language. Like, please, can we dispense yeah. with the subtitles? Yeah. So there was a bit of that. But when I was listening to it and I was fascinated and it was great and it was so impartial and so thorough. And I'd never heard it approached. I'd never heard this. It always in, in Ireland, it has been approached, it seems, up until recently, in a very prurient way, in a very tabloidy yes. way and in a rumour based way, which does no good to anybody, whether we're right or wrong. Yeah. Um, and I think I think people are quite entrenched in their views as well on the case. Yeah, so it they was are. it was really refreshing. I think I think you said it before we started recording, Tart, the idea of like you nearly needed to have that outside perspective in order for it to be told in that fantastic impartial way, which it was in West Cork. So I'm going to look at whether or not Ian Paley knew Sophie when he claims to find out about the murder, his previous assaults, confessions, evidence, key witnesses, and also something which came in uh, came in for a lot of criticism, which was the guards handling of the case. So I'm going to just look at that yeah, as well. Yeah, that was so, yeah. OK, go on, it's, go for it. And I'll be okay, here. So, I'll be the Watson to your Sherlock Holmes. So one of the most important questions is whether or not Ian Paley actually knew Sophie, something which he has strenuously denied in both his libel action and his high court action, as well as all media interviews. So Bailey's position can best be summarised by what he told is he told the court in his 2003 libel action, which was he was doing some gardening work for Sophie's neighbour, Alfie Lyons, in the summer of 1995, when he saw a blonde woman outside her house, but he did not meet her. And then in that libel trial, the same one, Alfie Lyons said he was 90% sure that he had introduced Ian Bailey to Sophie that day. And then another man who was present at the time also said that that introduction did happen. So Mark That'd McCarthy, he was a friend of Jill, one of Jules Thomas's daughters. So Jules Thomas, of course, was Ian's long term partner, also said that he saw Bailey speaking to Sophie previously to this. And a skibbering garage man by the name of Sean Murray told Gordy that he had sold petrol to a woman driving a Ford Fiesta that matched Sophie's description on the 20th of December 1996 and she had a companion in her car who resembled Bailey but that only came from Sean Murray so it was never I suppose it was never kind of confirmed by any other source. 
even looking at, because we'll get to the French take on it um, as well, but actually a lot of stuff that would have been admissible in France, like, for example, now, uh, so a lot of stuff that would have been admissible there would not be admissible in, in Irish court. So a couple of things yeah. that fall within the hearsay rule, for example. So a friend of Sophie's had said the week before she left that she was due to meet, quote, a weird guy who wrote poetry during her visit. Her cousin also said that she, I know, it, you know, it's it's not looking good, but Sophie's cousin also said, Alexandra Levy also talked about Sophie at receiving a phone call at work a week before she left, and she was shocked by this phone call. She said it was from a freelance journalist in West Cork who wished to meet her for, quote, cultural purposes. And another friend, film producer Guy Jeray, I think is how we pronounce it, said that Sophie spoke sure. about a friend of hers who was exploring the theme of violence in his writings and that his name was Bailey. He told police that he had said to Sophie, oh, I know who you're talking about, thinking it was a French filmmaker, Edwin Bailey. But Sophie replied, no, that she could not, he could not know him as his name was Ian Bailey and he was a freelance writer who lived in West Cork and she seemed to know him well. So again, all those conversations were admissible in the in the in the French jurisdiction, but they wouldn't have been admissible yeah. here. And just to, um, I don't want to offer too much personal opinion, uh, but in my opinion, it's very hard not to know somebody in a of community that small. So it'd be and, hard uh, to think they hadn't met. Yes. It would be, you know, slightly it would be obviously more likely that they would have some acquaintance because it is a small, you know, community. But also if somebody is lying about knowing a victim, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're guilty either. So you could, you know, no. you can look at it both ways. And somebody could be absolutely you know, the the oddest bod on the planet, but if being an odd bod was no, or being a, a strange, a strange poet were enough does not a murderer make. And it would mean that most people lie no, most people I know would be guilty. Look, anyone who does comedy and certainly anyone who's trying to do true crime comedy podcast is, let's face it, like a little bit odd, I think is the understatement of the century. And I Julie, often do say, when, say, people, say <laughs> when I often say when people ask, did I play sport in school? I say, well, there were no poetry teams when I was in school. I mean, you know, so this is it, that just because you're eccentric, again, that's not something that can be used against you in court. But one question, which was a big question, very pertinent to the case, was when did Ian Bailey actually know about the murder? So so the Garda case relied on the testimony of Irish examiner reporter Eddie Cassidy, whose records show that he rang Bailey at his home at 1.40pm on December December 23rd, saying that there had been a murder in Tourmore and asking could he check it out. Cassidy was adamant uh, in all the trials where he testified that he simply said a woman had been murdered and did not say she was French as he didn't know the victim's nationality at that stage. Bailey insisted that Cassidy had told him the woman was French. And one of the more ironic aspects of the case is that because the DPP refused to ever bring a criminal prosecution against Ian Bailey, claiming that the Gardaí had mishandled the murder and rebuking the evidence of what the DPP deemed extremely unreliable witnesses, most of the evidence which pointed, well, which could be said to point to uh, Bailey's potential guilt actually came about as a result of a 2003 libel action which he himself brought against eight newspapers. So a lot of the things that people latched on to, and obviously these, you know, these elements can be read either way, but a lot of things that people did latch on to would have come into the into the public forum as a result of this libel case, which Ian Bailey brought about in 2003. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you don't want heat on you, I'm bringing a big Big high profile libel case isn't the best way to do it. And I think, I think, I mean, but then again, if I were trying if to prove innocent, my innocence, yeah. I'd go all the way. This so is it. Um, it is, it's a, this is, I'm so glad that I'm not in the law. I'm oh, very no. glad but, that my you know armchair what? sleuthing is, is left to <laughs> the ar- literal armchair with crisps on my chest going, yeah, that did it. That fella, well, you that know fella, what? He did it. I think out of any of the true crime stories I've encountered, this one, I think literally every aspect you could read it either way. Because even exactly that with the libel action, I would say, well, you know, why is he kind of courting attention? You know, should he not be trying to keep a low profile? If that is the case, is that not what he wants? But the flip side is, if you were innocent, maybe you would do it. 
What would you do to, to clear your name? What would so, you, I mean? It's very hard to know, but the, they did, again, in the libel trial, they did focus on when did he know of this murder? So again, there was this lady called Caroline Lefwick who told that trial in 2003 that Bailey had rang her between half 11 and half 12 to say he couldn't collect some garlic as he had to report on a murder. And when she asked of whom, he said a French woman. Another witness testified to similar effect, saying that he was still in bed at around half 11. So this would have been two hours before um, Eddie Cassidy said he made the call to tell Ian Bailey about the murder. So this fellow said that he was in bed when Ian Bailey rang him to say he couldn't deliver a turkey he had for them as there had been a murder, which he had to report on. And he said he seemed, quote, excited. Again, adding to the confusion is a statement from another deceased witness, who Patrick Lowney, which was read in evidence in Paris that a man whom he later identified as Ian Bailey came to him in May of 2000, asking him to discreetly develop a role of film at his dark room in Clonakilty. The film had photos of the crime scene, which would seem to suggest Bailey had been there before the guards sealed off the area, but Bailey denied this. So again, that was admissible in Paris, wouldn't have been admissible in an Irish court. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in France. Uh, and I, I just hope it's fair. I, I hope that justice, it would just be great to think that justice will be done in this case. It, it, well, uh, I think for everyone, like, I mean, especially, that's right. I mean, obviously, especially Sophie's poor son, you know, who I'm sure at this point just wants closure. Um, I can't even imagine what it's been like for them to live with all this happening so publicly. And look at us now, we're, we're discussing it now. I mean, part of it is because we genuinely care. We would love to see justice done. It's something that for me, I do feel like it's something that's very close to home. And it would be the idea that someone's someone's lived a life that she hasn't been able to and just and just so out there young. living their lives. She was only 37. But I think there's a reason that it stays with us and that is because it is unsolved and yeah. it would be great for the family to get justice and some kind of closure, as you say. I thought it was absolutely amazing. I thought, what strength that they do still go to that very property, that they find that way to keep connection with her. Isn't it fantastic? Her. Yeah. And that they're I, so connected I, to the place. I thought, I mean, I just burst into tears. I think I would just shut the door on something like that and walk away. But they were, they just have more fortitude than me or that the connection they find with her there is is very strong. But That was such, that was it was such a moving moment, wasn't it, in West Cork? And that they go back and that the people there know them. and beautiful, yeah. Which I think that that would be lovely for the people to, I think, you know, it's the same with any small town anywhere, but you feel very proprietorial and you feel very... Um, most towns are open and welcoming and they really want to make people feel welcome. And when something like this happens, you feel like you've you've let people down in a way as a community. I think yes, there's that feeling. Yeah. And I think there must be some kind of, however tiny, some kind of redemption in, in making sure that her family knows they're cared for and welcomed and cherished there. I mean, I'm maybe talking absolutely out of my... No, I think that's actually I think that's actually a gorgeous point. And you know what? It's a real testament, I think, to the community itself that actually that really came across in the West Cork podcast that there is that element of like making sure that they still feel that there's a place for them there. Like it seems to be very important to the locals, which I just think is gorgeous. A history of violence. So I think in, in terms of looking at this, you probably would have to look at Ian Bailey's history of, of violence. So he did have a disturbing track record of violence against women and have been convicted twice of seriously assaulting his long-term partner, Jules Thomas. A particularly damning aspect of the libel trial then was the presentation of Bailey's diaries, which again, you know, I suppose... Going back to the uh, to to the violence, he did talk about a time that he did attack his poor partner, Jules Thomas, after drinking binge and had said in the diary, I felt sick. I feel sick reading my own report to the events that night. I really wanted to kill her, which, again, is not ideal. Yeah, not good. It's not, not ideal. Good. Evidence then, actual evidence. So this is what it comes down to. And this is one of the things that the DPP noticed, noted was the complete lack of DNA evidence. So they didn't have DNA evidence any whatsoever from the scene. So what they were looking for was anyone who had marks or scratches around that time, around Christmas 1996. Mm. 
And uh, Garda Kevin Kelleher from Skull and Detective uh, Bart O'Leary from Bantry noticed Ian Bailey had scratches on his hand when he bought a copy of the Times in Brosnan's newsagents in Skull. This again was presented in France. They called to see him the next day where again they saw his scratches and they asked him how he did get scratched. He said that he got them when cutting the top of a Christmas tree. He was saying that he had to go downstairs at two in the morning to go do some writing. The next morning his partner Jules had actually told the guards herself that when he brought her a cup of coffee in bed that he she did know a marker scratch on his forehead and he told her that he had got it from a stick but he didn't elaborate on where or how it happened. See, I think if I were a writer I would maybe come up with something better than a stick, an unattended think, stick, a stick, no, a stick by itself, a, a floating stick, a magic stick. Um, and if, uh, look, you know, I, I, if your yeah, husband I, or partner said a stick, you would, you know, I would probably want more deets. You know, I'd want a little bit more information there. Yeah. It, was it a stick attached to a man that you owed money to? Or uh, did you fall over and land on a stick? It's it's just a strange thing to say. But it's I've very strange. Yeah. I'd say. <laughs> yeah, you know what I want to give you my, my byword, and I I do apologise, Julie, because my byword for this podcast is going to be cagey. I'm going to be cagey AF, <laughs> and I'm going to keep my cork cards very close. I to think cagey is probably. I think the American equivalent <laughs> for our American listener is plead the fifth. That's probably. I I think that yeah. <laughs> that's the I'm equivalent. Cagey. I'm going to maybe sometimes offer a second option where I don't necessarily feel there is one but um but I'm going to offer it anyway for the purposes of discussion I, but you know what thank you so much because that's actually what you need you definitely do certainly in a case like this as well I think you have you have to take that approach so basically the scratches were a bit of an issue now Bailey had said that he had gotten these a couple of days before Sophie was murdered on the 22nd but when the guards spoke to he would have been down the pub that night um it was a sunday night december 22nd when they spoke to the people in the pub nobody remembered seeing any scratches on ian bailey's hands so the barman the people drinking there nobody remembers seeing this and also um again he was kind of reiterating that these scratches were stemming from the turkeys and the christmas tree and actually laura matney who's a gas cork woman as well she made the point that it's just a very violent depiction of Christmas, isn't it? It's just a lot of, you know, like Christmas trees attacking you, turkeys, you know, drawing blood. Uh, like it's just Christmas quite... is a Christmas is a very violent time. And who hasn't been electrocuted by some lights or I mean, who hasn't? So I think we have to well, leave some true. room for questions there. That um, is, because I stand before, corrected. Yes, I that is very, very true, is, Tara. We 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 hallmark card it up, but actually Christmas is terrifying. So they also had a visitor who again, Jules's daughter Ginny, had a visitor, a friend over Christmas, who again said that she landed at the house on December twenty third. That so that day. And she is so she's oh, sorry, the day after the murder, she had landed up um to the house and said again that she noticed very deep and heavy marks from scratches on both his hands. And again, you know, it comes down to a guy on Christmas Eve. Ian Bailey went into a hardware shop to buy a saw, a new blade for a saw. Again, saw the scratches. So the scratches were definitely there. And when in terms of him saying they came from a Christmas tree, Jules Thomas's other daughter, Safi, had actually said to her father, um, and there was, a, there was a couple of people present at the time, that it was her that had cut down the Christmas tree, not Ian Bailey, and that he was, quote, a lazy bastard and wouldn't have done it. So, again, this would have probably, you know, again, obviously refuted Ian's take on it in terms of where he got the scratches. So, although not necessarily completely damning, it probably, you know, it probably is one of the more incriminating aspects would be these scratches. Now, Marie Farrell was a very interesting character and very important in terms of this whole case. So Marie had a huge section of the DPP file dedicated to her because she was the guard star witness. And the DPP 
essentially said, look, there's no way we can put this woman on the stand. So she in herself was a fascinating character. She had moved to Skull um, with her husband and her kids. The Saturday before Christmas, she claimed to have noticed a man outside her shop, a stranger in a black ankle length coat and a beret. So, I mean, literally the most French outfit ever, Tara, a beret, an actual beret. (laughs) He was thin. An actual beret. An actual grey. I think it could have been raspberry. I'm not too sure. But he was thin, <laughs> sallow skinned and about five foot eight, she said, around the same height as her husband. She she had initially told the guards. Now, Sophie had been in the shop and she claimed that she noticed this man that when so noticed this man while Sophie was in the shop. And when Sophie exited the shop, that the man followed her. She said, obviously, at the time, she didn't realise that, that this was um, uh, Sophie Toscantopolanti. But... She said that the next day she also noticed the man and the third time she noticed this man was later that night. And this was when she had left home at 10pm to meet a man she had known in the past, quote, an old friend. So in the early hours of that morning on the road back to school, they passed this same man, she said. This same man who was, quote, staggering as if he was intoxicated and his arms were outstretched. Now, on Christmas Day, Marie Farrell contacted the guards from a payphone. She told them about this sighting and she gave a fake name to the guards. So she said her name was Fiona. On the 11th of January, she rang the guards again, again from a public payphone and told the guards that she had seen this man at at Kilfadat Bridge around 3am on the night that Sophie was murdered, which would have been very near the crime scene. And then on the 20th of January, the chief superintendent at the time, Neil Smith of West Cork Garda Division, issued an appeal on Crimeline asking Fiona to contact them again in confidence. And then the day after, so the next day she rang them and used, you know, the, the name Fiona. But the problem was, so she was using payphones the whole time. But then when she made the third phone call after this Crimeline report, again, used the name Fiona, she used her own landline. So this was oh, the issue. Dear. <laughs> yeah. So if you're going to make an anonymous phone call, don't use the landline is what we're saying. So the guards traced the call, of course, to the farm house and they came to see her in her shop. So according to Marie, she allegedly came under pressure to identify the man as Ian Bailey. So they, she had said that they'd been really friendly and they said that they knew Ian Bailey had killed the lady and that they needed to do something to stop him. So in February of that year... Mm. She said she signed a bunch of blank pages, which, quote, she didn't give much thought to. So statements attributed to her described the man she saw. So the description had changed from five foot eight to around five foot ten. Sorry, five changed from five foot eight to over six feet. And also uh, she'd originally said he was kind of a slightly built man. And now the description was that he was heavily built. So, again, the description would have matched Ian Bailey. But she claimed that that had been changed unbeknownst to her. See, human memory is fascinating. I've yes, said the word fascinating yeah. a lot, so but it's because it's apt. It's very unreliable. I don't know if you've been watching the Innocence Project. Again, another another true crime show, but it's it's basically about how oh, yes. reverse engineered. Oh I think I have seen this. Yeah, reverse engineered. Is this the Innocence uh, Files or the Innocence Project? Yes, brilliant. Yeah, really interesting. And it is. It's old cases, but looking back at sort of reverse engineered evidence, physical evidence, reverse engineered through pseudoscience or poor science or whatever. Um, and and people's memory, like eyewitness accounts that don't always match up or yeah. that change. So we've got that going on anyway. And then you have certain personalities, and I'm not saying Marie is this or not, I'm not saying it, but who need to be in the middle of something and and, 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 yes, and joy. She- Feeling, feeling that they are part of something. They might and, even feel that they're helping. And she was very much portrayed as, what you know, whether fairly or unfairly, the Irish media portrayed her as someone who was looking to insert herself into this narrative. And even in West Cork, again, she talks about how, you know, she found it so difficult that people were portraying her as a fantasist um, because that certainly was actually one of the things that would have been, you know, levied against her at the time. But in 2003, then, the libel action, she did stand over this, that she had seen a man which who would have matched Ian Bailey's description at uh, the at this bridge 
at 3 a.m. near the crime scene. Um, so she was obviously a key witness in that libel trial. And then in 2005, guard, a guard by the name of Garda Walsh told her that she might have to testify again. In a civil action taken by Sophie's parents, she said she couldn't go through with it. And she said she was going to go to Frank Buttermer, who, of course, was Ian Bailey's solicitor. And the guard Walsh, she said, told her at the time, if you go down that road, you'll never have a day's peace for as long as you live in Skull. So in April 2005, Marie Farrell contacted Bailey's solicitor and said that she had been coerced by the Gordie into making a false statement, incriminating Ian Bailey, and recanted her statement that the man she saw that night near the crime scene was Ian Bailey. So it was obviously huge at the time that she was going back saying, no, the guards actually made me say that. And in 2014, I suppose, you know, again, this would have been one of the things that would have fed into Bailey's case. Bailey took a wrongful arrest case against the Guard Commissioner in 2014. Under cross-examination, Marie Frau was asked to reveal who she was with when she saw a man on Kilfadab Bridge at 3am on the morning of Sophie's murder 18 years ago. I don't know if you remember, do you remember her response? No, I don't. I so don't. Her, her response, I know, because there's so many trials as well, I even find coming back to them, like, which trial was that? So Marie Farrell's response was, I'm going, quote, I'm going, I've nothing more to do with it. Now, this is obviously in Dublin, by the way, just to paint a picture for our listener. So it's, you know, in the Dublin, it's in a Dublin court. She stormed out of the courtroom and started walking down the quays towards Houston Station. So she said, I'm getting the train to Cork. That is it. I'm done with this. So basically, the media are running after her, like legal teams are running after her. They eventually convince her to go to come back. And in what other country would this happen, by the way, that somebody just walks out the door and says, I'm getting the train. I'm done here. So she, <laughs> three hours later, she came back and she said that the man she had been in the car with was a man by the name of John Riley, who was a Longford factory worker that she grown that she had known growing up, growing up, who at that time was deceased. Uh, now his family would have refuted that, just to say that as well. But she did give the name when she returned to court, and the family, after the fact, would have said there is no way. But this is what Marie said anyway in the, in the witness box. And then she also claimed at another stage that another local guard had stripped naked and asked her for sex. So again, this would have emerged as well. So it was all just getting very, the, I mean, the story was just getting crazier and crazier. It's like really. there, are, there, are so, there are so many layers to this and there's so much of me, the very curious part of me just wants to know motivations for either doing things or simply saying they happened. I, I, I don't know whether they're true or not. And I'd love to know. And I just wish I had a magic wand, a magic stick. It's, from it's earlier. So, yeah. I wish I had the magic stick that would reveal it all to me. But but more than anything, we're back again <laughs> to poor Sophie. And just saying, just saying, you know, what why can't there be it would just be so incredible for her family to get justice. I think for Eve Farrell, her role in the whole story is probably more problematic than anything. And the DPP did acknowledge that. They were just saying, look, you know, if this is your key witness. You know, her testimony and in and of itself is probably probably one of the more problematic um, aspects to the whole thing. One thing which, you know, again, I you know, we can say that this is like damning evidence against Ian Bailey, but he was known to confess to the murder quite a bit. This is one of the things that, you know, he would do down through the years. So a couple of months after the murder, the first person he supposedly confessed about the murder to was, do you remember there was this teenage hitchhiker by the name of Maliki Reed, and he got a lift home from Ian and he asked how he was. And in this country, Tara, when you ask someone how they were, how they are, you're never expecting a real answer, are you? No, no, you're just Fine, supposed to go grand. Thank you. But Ian replied, fine until I went up there and smashed her brains in with a rock. So the trial in Paris also heard similar evidence, again, given by uh, this guy called Richie Shenny, who told the guards that he and his wife, Rosie, had gone back with with Ian and Jules Thomas to, new, to a New Year's Eve party in 1998. So it would have been a year after the murder. And they both said that Bailey had Ian Bailey had taken out a scrapbook of cuttings about the murder, began talking about the killing before breaking down in tears, saying, I did it, I did it, I went too far, which they both took in as, a, as an admission that he had killed Sophie. So his wife at the time had corroborated this, but by the time the French trial happened, his wife actually died. But both of them had, again, given affidavits to that, to that effect, that he, that's what Ian had said. 
Uh, I mean, the cumulative so picture again, is, is not great. It's not great. But it, somebody I did speak to relatively recently about this, would, uh, she said, well, I feel that's just him trying to make this about him because he's that type of narcissistic personality. So she's somebody that would be, you know, very much of the mindset, well, no, like, I don't think we can take that to mean that he actually did it. Like, you know, as we know, people do confess to things for various reasons that that doesn't necessarily mean that they did actually commit the crime. People do throw their hands up sometimes and say, fine, you say I did it, I did it. Fine, I did it, I did it. Although I think with something this serious, it's less likely. It's just less yes. likely and there was, to there was joke a, about it or or even be sarcastic, darkly sarcastic about it. I just, I don't know though. I, I yeah, I, I, I haven't encountered and, and, that, but who knows? Was, you know, there was the couple from Northern Ireland who were in the pub a few years later. And again, Ian Bailey was like, you know, that murder, just so you know that I did it. This guy, Billy Fuller, again, said that Ian Bailey had rehashed an account of the murder in the second person. So saying he said, you killed her, you saw her in the shop, you fancied her, so you went up there to see what you get, but she ran away screaming, you chased her to calm her down. She was scared, so you struck her in the back of the head. You realised you went too far, so you finished her off. So again, there were numerous people who said that he would have confessed all of this completely unadmissible in Irish court, but um, in, in France they did take it into consideration. The last element, though, of the case, in terms of, I suppose, giving a balanced overview, the guards handling of the case was, you know, I suppose, less than exemplary. We'd say that we'd mm-hmm. say that much. So in September 2013, the Garda watchdogs, GSOC, asked the Garda Shia Corner for files on suspects in the killing, because at that stage, Ian Bailey, Jules Thomas and Marie Farrell had made allegations that the police had amounted to, the actions of the police had amounted to corruption. So the GSOC were like, look, Look, we need to get the files on this. Look into it. Now, it was told that five of the files were missing. So these files included, so the five files that were missing were basically the five files on the chief suspects. So Ian Bailey, Jules Thomas and three other suspects, they were told we can't actually find those files. Lads, a big tin box. A big tin box. <laughs> a USA locked. tin. You're right. There's no losing <laughs> yeah. stuff. Or you could even buy one with a lock on it. You could buy like <laughs> it was like a big USA tin, a big green USA tin with a lock on it and a slidey drawer top mechanism. Security. Top security now. And but I mean that's I mean, I mean that's just we didn't have USB sticks and things back in the day, but there were secure, some more secure filing systems that then seem to have been used. We and didn't I, have I, USB, I, but uh, we had USA biscuits, which were just no as effective. But isn't that no unbelievable, USA. Tara? So five, the five files can find it's, them. It's just kind of heartbreaking because it feels like with um, it feels like the combination of negligence and negligence and from some quarters deception from other quarters and and actually weirdly goodwill and wanting to sort things out from other quarters they've all I just got this big tangle yeah. big tangle that has become un un untangleable and that is absolutely heartbreaking when it's something of I mean, this magnitude and this serious yeah i mean you would say like whatever about losing one file but all the chief suspects, the files could not be found. Three months later, the guards produced a list of exhibits they couldn't find. 22 pieces of evidence they could not find. Now, bear in mind, this was a case that did not have much evidence. So 22, like 22 items is a lot. The two, so, amongst some, so, so amongst some of these exhibits... The, these exhibits that were missing, some of which included uh, Ian Bailey's diary, which would have been massively important, and his overcoat, which he apparently wore all the time. So that was missing and the diary. But the biggest, like the, the most, the strangest, the strangest item, item which was missing and certainly the most egregious in terms of like the guards defending themselves and saying, no, like this was all above board. The blood-spattered garden gate, which mm, had been missing right. from Sophie's property and taken as, in as evidence, was also missing. Like, how do you lose a gate? I could lose anything, honestly, but I, the guards a aren't gate? supposed to. When it's yeah, evidence, I mean, a, a gate. gate is really bad. 
And again, 139 witness statements were also missing, like 139, huge amount. There were also the jobs books, which were a bit of an issue. So jobs books are just a record of the investigation, like essentially like, you know, what evidence was taken and, you know, obviously the different jobs that have been assigned to the guards, etc. So they were quite important in terms of solving and prosecuting a crime. So there were seven jobs books in the investigation into Sophie's death. In jobs book number two, on page nine, Bailey was mentioned as a suspect. So that was the first page she was mentioned as a suspect. But really strangely, pages one to seven, just before this, are all missing. Oh, if I were her family, honestly, I'd... (laughs) <laughs> I wouldn't be as magnanimous as they seem to be. <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, I would be. I'm I'm raging just listening to that. And it's, yeah, it's, I've got to go back just, and listen yeah. to the West Cork podcast and just re- re- reacquaint myself with, with my anger. <laughs> I, and you know yeah. what? I can't even remember if they, I'm sure they did reference this because obviously it was so comprehensive. But the next few pages in the jobs book as well, after the mention of Bailey, pages 10 or 11 are also missing. So the jobs books are kind of like, they're like bound hardback books. So the pages couldn't have fallen out. So GSOC sent the book to, in, in GSOC's defence. They were not buying that these pages fell out. So they sent the book to a forensic scientist in Northern Ireland who said that the pages had definitely been cut from the book, probably using scissors. So ultimately GSOC found, um, which kind of surprised me, they said that there were aspects of the case which they found, quote, gravely concerning, but ultimately, they decided it was not corruption. So the guards, you know, weren't found guilty of anything. Kind of surprised me because I just think so much of that is pretty egregious. Like, it's yeah. pretty serious and in terms of mishandling. Wouldn't you be, if it was, if it was your organisation, wouldn't you go, oh, I don't want that to be hanging over us. I'll try to get to the bottom of that. But look, yeah, I'd be looking for whoever has scissors. <laughs> I just, I mean, the fact that they said, and you can imagine, you know, even if a child has those pages fell out, like it must have been so obvious that these were cut out with scissors. Like you do actually cringe slightly. I mean, please, guys. But just, I suppose, again, to end with a bit of a, you know, in in the interest of balance, in terms of other potential suspects, on Christmas Eve 1996, a travel agent in Galway, whom Sophie had previously used, uh, had said that he had a young male customer who seemed frazzled enter his shop. The man was a French national. He mentioned something about West Cork and needing a one-way ticket back to Paris. The Galway travel agent described the man as wearing a black coat and a... No way. No way. Raspberry? A raspberry beret. And the match was actually a match for the original description Marie Farrell would initially give to police via the alias of Fiona. So it's just just when you think, okay, now I think, you know, I kind of have a bit of a handle on this. You hear something like that from a reasonably credible witness. Uh, You know, I mean, the man has no reason probably to insert himself into the narrative. But you, you just wonder, like that is just such... It's 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 a it's a line of inquiry which unfortunately didn't it didn't seem to have been pursued at the time. Wow! But you do wonder. It's a line of inquiry in a labyrinth, and that's the unfortunate thing. It really um, is. And, I, and I don't the, know how they ever will extricate it all, but I just I just hope they do. Um, I hope, and not, not just I mean, not just for my mother because she's going to she's absolutely she's never going to listen to this and she's never going to listen to West Cork. Tara, she, no, they, it could happen. She could listen to Crime Land. It could it could work. I'm sorry, well, Julie. I, you know, she won't. She wants a conclusion, and we can't find one. Well, in the hope of conclusion, what I will say is, <laughs> as we said at the start, Bailey was convicted in absentia of the murder of Sophie Tuscantiplante at the court decease in Paris last May. He was sentenced to 25 years. His extradition hearing was due to be held on the 30th of March, but of course, it had to be postponed because of COVID-19. COVID-19. So just when you think you couldn't get another twist in the tail, it got postponed because of COVID-19. So that extradition hearing has to happen. Um, You know, who knows? I think probably people would say it's unlikely he's going to be extradited. But, you know, the extradition hearing is still due to take place. 
And that is the story of the murder of Sophie Toscant Plantier. Well, you know, if that that final piece has been delayed because of microbes, maybe then microbes could come in and help in the form of, I don't know, it's probably not microbial at all, but some bit of scraping of something tiny, some DNA at some stage that they couldn't examine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I I have such hope in DNA. I always think surely, surely there is something you can find. But I guess, unfortunately, what must be so, I mean, you know, beyond upsetting and distressing for the family is the fact that so much of this evidence is missing. Nobody knows why it's missing. Nobody knows how it got missing. There's so much missing. It's so long ago now too. Yeah. It's so long ago now too. I mean, it it really is. So it's, it's a very sad case because it just seems to go on and on and on and with no real conclusion. But at the same time, you know, the judgment in France was some form of conclusion, even though, you know, it would be nice, obviously, if I mean, I, you know, you don't know how applicable it is within the Irish jurisdiction. But maybe the French case was some form of comfort to, to Sophie's family. Um, I mean, who's to say? But they, they did find him guilty and they did sentence him to 25 years. And obviously it remains to be seen whether or not he'd be extradited. A labyrinth, an absolute labyrinth. A labyrinth. Um, but anyway, we'll uh, we'll always think of her, and of uh, that's definitely she's definitely she's part of the West Cork story now. She is part of that community, and she's part of like she's she's not been forgotten, and she won't be forgotten. And people are um, people do want the family to find justice, so it, it, it's not a it's not I, I think it's kind of different to other true crime. I sort of, I say true crime with a capital T and capital C, uh, you know, it's sort of like something I look at on Netflix and like we were talking before, sort of a way to explore dark And it seems kind theme. of distant nearly, isn't it? It seems sort of distant. Netflix. Yeah. distant. This is very, very close to home for, for most of us, I think. Ireland's yeah. very small. We do welcome people. We feel like we're welcoming people. You know, whether we could do better on certain fronts, but we do feel like we are. And I think this one will always... We'll always feel a connection to it in some way. Harry, you're such a star, Bert. Thank you so much for coming on, Crime right. Man. Thanks for having me. Chat real soon. And bye to Jack. Bye, to, bye from Jack and Buffy, the cat and the dog. What? This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.